Welcome back to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm your host, Lance Thurner. Today I'm going to be talking with Professor Simony Howe about her new book, Ecologics, Wind and Power in the Anthropocene, out from Duke University Press in 2019. Ecologics is one half of a duograph, along with Energopolitics by Dominic Boyer, which together follow the development of wind power in southern Mexico and the social, political, and environmental ramifications of a transition towards renewable energy. I encourage listeners to also go to my interview with Dominic Boyer, as well as my interview with both authors about the process of collaborative fieldwork and authoring the duograph. Without further delay, I give you my interview with Simony Howe, Professor of Anthropology at Rice University. Professor Simony Howe, uh, welcome to the show. It's so wonderful to have you here. Hi, Lance. It's great to be with you and the listeners here. This is an amazing and fascinating and thought-provoking work on the development of wind power in southern Mexico. And, you know, when we think about wind power kind of generally, I mean, we think of like a windmill out in a barren landscape somewhere. But, you know, as you show here, there's much, much more to to disentangle or to to demonstrate the entanglements. Um, can you explain a little bit about what your intention uh, and expectations with this volume are? Sure. So the intention of the research and the book itself is really to try and unravel the, the quality of wind power development in a place like southern Mexico, but with an eye toward other places as well. So as Around the world, we need to transition to renewable forms of power. That I take as a given. And so the process of how that occurs and the impacts and effects on the ground or in the air, as the case might be, are really important to me. So what I wanted to try and understand through this book are the contingencies, the effects, the impacts upon human populations as these energy transitions occur, but also upon environments and other than human or other species that are affected or sort of caught up in the wind itself as the wind undergoes a kind of shift in its corpus, in its qualities, and the the instruments that it's supposed to engage and put forward. You describe in the introduction of this book as both anticipatory and interruptive. What do you mean by this, and what are you hoping this book achieves in that regard? Those were a couple of heuristics that I developed as I was working on the material and analyzing the data. This is, I should mention, this is an anthropological research project, and so it's based on 16 months of field research and many hundreds of interviews with people in the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, where the research took place, as well as in Mexico City and Oaxaca City, which are the governmental centers where much of the policy and sort of legal aspects of wind power get articulated and worked out. So in analyzing that data, I realized it was important to highlight the anticipatory nature of energy transitions, and and in this case, wind power in southern Mexico. So with transitions, we have this kind of ambivalent understanding. On the one hand, we as a human species need to find better, more sustainable forms of energy to be able to live the kinds of, you know, good and productive lives that we want to live. And yet at the same time, we're in a whole new paradigm of how to do that. So there's a kind of anticipatory anxiety, I think, that gets 
that, that happens alongside the infrastructural developments of wind power. And that is, is we know we need to make these transitions, but we're not fully understanding exactly how to move forward with that. And so there's a lot of trial and error in some sense. And there's some experimentation, if you will, in how to do, uh, how to undertake these transitions in the most generous way possible. And and by the most generous way possible, I mean taking account of the human populations that are affected by energy transitions, so people living in the local environment, and also the other creatures and environments that are impacted by that. So that's the anticipatory piece of it, is that there's a kind of um, an experimental quality to these new energy forms, and we need to be conscious of that and careful about how we proceed all the while knowing that we will proceed forward with these transitions. And then the interrupted piece was really about the wind itself. So I'm sure that many people have heard some of the critiques of renewable power, solar power, and wind power is that it's intermittent. That is, it's not a constant source of energetic power like we have with coal or petroleum, or even with hydropower when you have dams, you have a constant source of energy. With the wind, when it's not blowing, you're not generating electricity. With the sun, if you're not capturing uh, solar radiation and those photons, then you're not actually producing energy. So that's intermittency. Um, But the wind itself is in being intermittent, it's also a kind of interruptive force is the way I came to see it as it kind of blusters and moves through spaces and people's lives and creates these conditions that are, are familiar to some, but unfamiliar to others. And there's a, there's a way in which the, the kind of quality of wind itself as a force, a particular kind of force of nature is also interruptive in the way it comes into our lives. And I think that serves as a larger metaphor for how renewable energy transitions are kind of interrupting the kind of petro-politics or petro-modern conditions that we've come to know so well, but that we've also come to recognize are utterly unsustainable and that need to be taken to the wayside. This volume focuses on the example of the Maranian Renovables Wind Park, uh, which was eventually aborted. Can you explain what this was anticipated to become? Yeah, so the Marina Renovables project was to be the largest uh, single installation wind park anywhere in Latin America. So it's a huge, huge ambitious project uh, that was instituted with funding from uh, Japanese uh, funding and European funding, some Mexican funding. So a big transnational project of wind power development that was also underwritten by the Inter-American Development Bank, which really prioritizes green initiatives and green infrastructures. So the Morena project was exciting in the sense that it was going to prevent quite a lot of greenhouse gas emissions, 900 billion billion tons of greenhouse gas emissions, and it would have been 132 3-megawatt turbines that would have produced 400 megawatts of power, which was enough to power about 600,000 Mexican households. So it had it had these ambitions, and it could have potentially been a really important renewable energy transition for the region, and there was a lot of excitement about it. However, what ended up happening was the placement of the turbines uh, was being um, was was chosen 
to be placed upon a, a very narrow sandbar called the, the Barra de Santa Teresa, which is in the southern state of Oaxaca and the Isthmus of Tehuantepec. So if you think of that most narrow part of southern Mexico, that narrowed girth of, of the Isthmus, that's the, it's the western side, the Pacific side. So the idea was to put these turbines there, and immediately many fisher folk in the region who depend upon fishing for their livelihoods were very concerned about the impacts that both the construction of the park would have upon their fishing and their livelihoods, as well as the continued functioning of the park. So conventionally, wind turbines last for between 20 to 30 years, and so they have a, a, a lifespan, if you will, where they're producing energy, and, and they're pretty low impact when that's occurring. But one of the issues with the Barra is that it was unclear what the impact would be. So there's concerns about the turbines sort of shaking the sand underneath and disrupting fish and shrimp that live in the area. There was concern about the sounds of the blades as they're turning, or the aspas, they're called in Spanish, as they're turning through the air and creating sonic uh, disturbances that, again, might disrupt fish and other wildlife. There were the questions of lights upon the towers. So fisher folk and others, their families and others in the region, who, again, rely on fishing, if not exclusively as a way of life, uh, as a kind of backup or subsistence means of survival when they don't have other work to, to do. Uh, we're really concerned about the kind of environmental impacts this m might have, as well as the impacts of installing the park in the first place. And I think it's important to point out that uh, the Isthmus of Tehuantepec, this particular region, has become, over the last 15 years, the densest concentration of wind parks anywhere on Earth that, that we can find. It's, it's the densest concentration of wind parks anywhere on the planet. So there's already a, a huge number of wind turbines and wind parks in the region. But this was a step beyond because it was so much bigger and because of the way that the placement and development of the park was intended. It's also important to know that these are indigenous parts of Mexico. Oaxaca is considered the most indigenous state of Mexico. And in this region, you have isthmus, uh, Zapotec persons or Beniza people who have a strong political identity and who are very conscious and very aware of uh, transnational capital, if you will, and international development projects that they find to be or potentially to be stealing their land or occupying their land in ways that are very colonial in nature. And so one of the refrains that was very common to hear in this region was, this is la nueva conquista, or the new, the new conquest of Mexico. And one of the challenges was that many of the wind park developers were coming from Spain, the original colonial regime, right? Uh, or from the United States, the, the gringo colonial regime. So there, are, uh, there was lots of questions around indigenous sovereignty in the region, as well as uh, campesinos or farmers' sovereignty, fisher folk people who are very concerned about their livelihoods and about their futures, their own futures and that of their children and grandchildren. So these were some of the really resonant kind of human questions that were being posed to the Morena project. And it was through these kinds of critiques, questions about the environmental impact specifically, that ultimately the project was uh, set aside and was not developed. Uh, it was basically forced to move much further inland where it would have a different impact, but they were unable to build this project. And it was, it was 
quite a financial loss and perhaps a cautionary tale in some ways. And one of the things that I want to point out in the book is that by understanding what the developers of Marenia didn't account for, what they overlooked, what they forgot, what they uh, believed they knew but didn't, really spelled out the demise of the park. And if they had been more attentive, more engaged with the community, more able to listen and understand the concerns of local communities, they very well could have built this park and it could be generating renewable energy right now. Can you talk a little bit about how the local population organized itself to oppose this uh, wind park and, and a little bit about the role of the government in that? So the government was generally, and almost till the very end, uh, quite supportive of the project, um, in part because it was a huge amount of international investment in the region. And this is, Oaxaca is the second poorest state in the country of Mexico. And so having, having investment in economic development is a high priority for government authorities. So that was something that the government, the state government and the federal government, uh, to a degree, were both behind the project, as were the the developers themselves, a consortium of different developers. Uh, But local people in the region, uh, you know, this part of Mexico is quite famous for its resistance to outsiders and kind of imperial or colonial imprints. They very famously, uh, you know, resisted control from the Mexican nation state out of the center of Mexico City and even from the center of Oaxaca as well. So there's a a long, centuries long political history there that's very important that people draw upon and that they remember and recognize. And you also have a very strong indigenous identity um, that came to play in this project or in resistance to this project as well. So I mentioned the Zapotec or Biniza people um, who live in the region who have quite a strong uh, political voice in the area. Uh, but there's uh, also another indigenous group called Huave or Ikots in their own language, Ikots. And they're another indigenous group, and the two have lived side by side for centuries, but not always peaceably. There's been questions about land and who occupies land and who has the rights to to waterways. And there's there's been struggles between these two indigenous groups for many centuries. One of the interesting things that came out of this project was seeing how these two indigenous groups actually came together in resistance to the wind park. And so this was a, a new collaboration. This was a kind of a solidarity that hadn't existed before, uh, but that appeared in contrast to the development trajectories of the wind park itself. So there was kind of new alliances that got built. This is an interesting aspect of any big uh, mega project or mega proyecto. When you have something of scale that impacts human communities and others, it, it will often inspire different kinds of alliances and ways of uh, responding that I think can be very interesting and, again, have kind of instructive precedent for cases in other places. So this this case happened to unfold in Mexico, but one can imagine really similar dynamics occurring in other parts of the world. And I think one of the other very fascinating things about energy extraction or energy generation is the places where it takes place. 
You know, we consume most of our electricity and our energy in big urban centers, but much of that energy is produced outside of the urban center in rural hinterlands, in places that are far away from the largest human populations. And so there are people who are impacted there, but they may not necessarily be our next door neighbors. So recognizing that these places where the wind blows and the sun shines and uh, the dams are created you know, may not be the ecological uh, environments that we ourselves live in, but they are places where people are dramatically impacted. And that is in, in service of our own consumption of electricity and a desire for more energy and more power. Three of your chapters focus on the non-human objects and species that mediate influence and experience the development of wind power. Can you describe how you look at these and how they expand our understanding of the changes on the isthmus? Well, I thought it was very important because we sort of normatively, intuitively understand that energy comes from this thing called environment that we, you know, sort of generally gloss as environment, whether it's in the form of coal or oil uh, or hydropower or, you know, solar arrays. Like we have this sense that energy is extracted from the environment in one way or another. But I don't think we always think about the interrelationship between those two spaces, about our own human desire to consume energy and to use energy and the kinds of effects or qualities that it has within these environmental systems. So I wanted to bring those into really close relationship. And the things that I found fascinating about this case that I drew upon to author these three chapters that are meant to be the sort of interruptive chapters are the wind itself, first of all, and then um, this kind of technical apparatus that called trucks that is literally pickup trucks and, and trucks that are such a ubiquitous part of wind power development in the isthmus, and then finally species. And so I take these three figures as very critical to understanding how wind power unfolds. So wind itself obviously is very important to generate renewable wind power. That's a kind of given. But I found very interesting capacities within wind itself. One of the interesting things about wind is that it cannot be captured precisely. It cannot be held. It cannot be contained. So if we think about other resources, let's just take coal or even water for hydropower as an example, these are resources or entities, qualities, material qualities that can be contained, they can be held, they can be propertied, they can be demarcated um, and sort of boxed off or enclosed, if you will. With wind, the moment that you enclose it, it no longer has its kinetic power. It becomes something entirely different. It becomes still air and therefore not generating power. So there are very interesting questions about, for example, who owns the wind? The wind is an oscillation between gases, heat, and cold differentials. 
and it blows across landscapes and across oceans, and it blows through people's homes and down roads. But there's a question as to who actually owns or controls the wind. So wind can be captured, the kinetic power of the wind can be captured by turbines and turned into electricity. But I think there's a a larger kind of philosophical question about to whom the wind belongs, if it belongs to anyone at all. Does it belong to wind power companies? Does it belong to local residents? Does it belong to the state? Does it belong to a global humanity? So there's there's an interesting philosophical question surrounding wind. The other thing I found about wind was that the only way we humans really sort of know it, uh, sense it, or can kind of uh, have, a, have a sensibility about it is in its interaction or relation to us or something else. So we can draw pictures of the wind and we can make graphs of the wind that capture some of its qualities. And that's one way of visualizing wind. Or we can see wind when it's blowing trees or if it's, you know, pulling our, our umbrellas in a storm. So, but it's always in relationship. And this was very interesting to me theoretically because much of the, the academic work and theoretical work that I use in the book is uh, feminist science and technology studies and studies of ontology and more than human uh, species studies. And so this question of relationality and interrelationality has been really important in that conversation. And for me, thinking through the wind as a, as a kind of innately relational force was a really important element that perhaps makes wind distinct from other kinds of renewable sources or other kinds of forces in general. And so these capacities, the kind of ontological capacities of the wind were very interesting and opened up these kind of philosophical questions that I think are important to think through Again, as we're contending with major infrastructural and energetic changes in our society, what are the different capacities that we need to consider? What are the priorities that we want to consider as we're considering these these particular forces and resources? And what about trucks? You have a chapter uh, entirely dedicated to trucks and, and how they evidence what is happening on the isthmus. Uh, despite being uh, the symbols that they are of a fossil fuel economy, being great gas guzzlers. Uh, why do you look at trucks and what do we learn from them? Yeah, well, that's a great question, Lance. And I, it's kind of a, I know it feels like a paradox in a lot of ways to write about trucks when we're talking about wind power. So this really came about very organically and ethnographically. And that is in all of these cases, Um, of wind power development and in the politics of wind power, there are an incredible number of trucks at every turn. So there were the trucks that were part of wind power development, that is, the trucks that were owned by the different wind power companies that would cruise around town with workers and checking on the turbines and hauling things back and forth, the kind of utilitarian pickup trucks. But there are also these other trucks that served political purposes 
So one truck that I talk about is the truck of a mayor, uh, the mayor of Huchitan, who has a lot of political power. And there's a way in which his truck becomes a kind of mobile reference for himself and his political prowess around the region, sort of, you know, driving through the streets and marking off his territory, if you will. It also becomes an important place for political conversations. There's a very important truck that makes the journey all the way to Mexico City in an overnight uh, caravan to protest the Morena project. And this little beat up, broken down truck makes it all the way out there and it ends up putting in, they end up putting in the, the bed of the truck, these loudspeakers and as the protesters drive all around Mexico City, uh, creating this protest against the wind parks and drawing a lot of media and public attention through that. And then there are these kind of menacing trucks that many people that um, I spoke with would, would talk about. And these were the trucks where you couldn't really see inside the windows, but uh, it was understood that someone was inside looking for you. And so you would have these white trucks that would come up in the middle of the night and they would ask, you know, have you seen where so-and-so is and we're trying to find her. There was a truck that nearly ran down someone who was protesting the wind parks. So there are these kind of menacing, uh, threatening trucks that were almost like um, devices of um, impunity in a way. Um, but they figured as sort of objects of terror, if you will, to intimidate people who were opposed to the wind parks. So there were, there were a lot of politics around the trucks. And it was astounding to see that um, kind of evolve through the project. I certainly didn't go to the Isthmus planning to write about trucks, but they were so ubiquitous. And I realized that after a time that they were telling us something about a larger process. So I talk about the trucks as, in the first instance, as indicator machines. An indicator, of course, we think of indicator species. So indicator species tell us something about the ecological conditions they're existing in, right? So if you have an amphibian in uh, a pond and that that amphibian is suffering, that's that can be an indicator species for something that's awry in the pond and probably with other species within that ecosystem as well. So we know about indicator species. So I began to think about these trucks as indicator machines, showing us something about the paradox or the imbalance that we find in these transitions as we're trying to find our way forward, the kind of rickety, unbalanced way in which that happens. So these indicator machines are telling us something about a larger ecosystem, an energetic ecosystem as we're trying to undertake these transitions. And I also came to think of them as transitional objects. And, uh, you know, people who are conversant with psychology know that a transitional object is a kind of an object that a child will have, like a blanket or a teddy bear. It's kind of a separation object. It's a way of understanding yourself different from the outside world. And it kind of mediates between the outside world and you, the development of yourself as a person. And so I think these trucks were also transitional objects that kind that are moving us between older forms of petroleum power, petromodernity, the Anthropocene, the unsustainable conditions of carbon that we have created in our world and are living with presently. So these are transitional objects that are also that are taking us into a new dimension 
where petro modernity will be a thing of the past and where we will have more and more renewable forms of sustainable power. But these are very central counterintuitively these are these trucks are very central objects to that process very central machines to that whole dynamic as tr- transitional objects hopefully they're ephemeral and uh, will join the past right um, <laughs> what about other living species that are on the on the isthmus well let's just start what what kind of species are we talking about and what happens to them well, it's interesting because I mentioned that the installation for the Marena project was along the sandbar. So it was a very, it was a, a lagoon, a lagoonal system, and then also the Pacific. So it's a complex ecosystem. It's a uh, migration route for uh, flocks of birds coming from North America, going south. And of course, migrating flocks of birds use the wind to help to help their path, to help their migration so that they can coast and float and not have to flap their wings the entire time. And so you do have a dynamic with wind power where many times those places that are windiest are also really good routes for migratory birds to travel. It's like very convenient for them to travel those same routes. So we have to be very careful about the placement of turbines and how that's affecting migrating birds. And, you know, when I talk to students about birds and wind turbines, I think most people think of the blades hitting, you know, maybe one bird, a a hawk or a raptor, and that does sometimes happen. But when you're talking about migrating birds, you're talking about thousands and thousands of birds in a flock. And if they come through a set of turbines, it can be really devastating and essentially kill a lot of birds. So one of the issues in the isthmus was to try and understand these migratory birds uh, and their nesting patterns. And in Mexico, uh, as here in the United States, they have uh, strict regulations about environmental impact and environmental impact reports need to be created before any project like a wind park can be put into place. Um, However, In the region and locally, sometimes there's suspicion about how thorough those environmental impact reports are, whether there's been some sort of bribery or some malfeasance that's happened around the impact reports. And so there's a lot of suspicion around whether they're accurate or not. So that was something else I wanted to explore is the validity or the authority of these environmental impact reports. In those reports, you also find documentation about sea turtles because there was also sea turtle nesting along the sandbar. So the environmental impact report had taken those into account. These are the classic uh, charismatic megafauna. Everyone loves sea turtles, right? And so they were a very important species and one that was being accounted for. There's also the Tehuantepec jackrabbit, which is a jackrabbit that's very close to extinction. I think there's about 500 individuals left and their territory has been so broken up that it's very hard for them to, it's very hard to imagine they're going to survive a whole lot longer. But again, a slightly charismatic species, you know, a bunny rabbit. Then there are these other species like bats that maybe are less charismatic and we don't maybe think about bats as much, uh, certainly as birds when we're thinking about wind turbines, but bats can be very negatively affected by wind turbines. They suffer something that's called barotrauma. Um, When they get in front of the rotor of a turbine, they can have the the wind sucked out of their lungs, essentially. They have very pliable lungs, and so they can literally drop dead just from coming near a turbine and getting caught in that vacuum. So there are lots of 
different species involved here in, you know, including the human species as well, who interact with all of these different, you know, airborne, landborne and waterborne creatures. I had mentioned earlier that this was a fishing region. So of course, shrimp were a very important question for people and how those populations would be responding to the turbines and then fish as well. And in the environmental impact reports, fish and shrimp were never mentioned as being affected, which I think was an error on the part of those who are planning the project, because clearly they were in this maritime region and a lagoonal region, and local human populations had a very strong opinion about the negative effects that might occur, and yet the environmental impact hadn't really taken that into account. So again, it's it's a kind of cautionary tale about really taking in the big picture of these environments, these places, these dynamics, these relationships that are extant when we're talking about putting in especially very large projects, um, whether it's for renewable energy transition or something else. There's always impacts. And that's something that you would hear in Mexico, in Mexico City and Oaxaca City and in the local region. You know, siempre hay afectaciones. Like there's always, there's always going to be a kind of impact. But it's a matter of, you know, how do we moderate that and how do we take that into account and how can we rebalance an unbalanced world um, like the one that we're living in currently? Right. And thinking about this big picture, uh, you know, this book, as you mentioned earlier, furthers a line of inquiry that gets called post-humanism or sometimes new materialism, uh, largely led by feminist scholars of science and technology who are trying to rethink human entanglements with non-human things and beings. So thinking about the wider picture, you know, that is like the, the transition towards renewable energy sources. What do you think are the stakes or what is the importance of the scholarship in accounting for non-human elements and consequences? Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's a great question. You know, probably some of your listeners are aware of a new paradigm that's been floated uh, over the last decade plus, and that is this concept of the Anthropocene. And there's been a lot of debate about this category called Anthropocene. Anthropocene essentially means the human impact upon all Earth systems. So the bio, you know, biotic systems, the geoforms, hydrospheres, cryospheres, atmosphere, obviously. And there's an Anthropocene working group that recently determined that, in fact, we can call this present age the geologic age of Anthropocene because we can find indicators of human impact everywhere on Earth. They talk about this as the golden spike, certain forms of nuclear radiation, for example, that we can find every place on the planet, plastics showing up in every dimension of every ecosystem, you know, including way down deep in the Mariana Trench, which you probably remember from couple months ago when they found that plastic down there. So in some ways, it's fair to say that Anthropocene is a, a condition. But one of the things that people have debated is, you know, whether that's just sort of lauding humans again, putting too much emphasis upon humans and their deeds. Uh, it feels very anthropocentric. In other words, like Anthropocene can seem very anthropocentric. But one of the important interventions that feminist scholars have always undertaken is to try and derail and critique that anthropocentrism, right, in the form of man with a capital M, but also in the form of sexism and 
you know, patriarch patriarchal norms of thought and action. And so I think that feminist thinking is a really productive way to get into questions about the Anthropocene and what we want it to mean going forward. So that's been very useful. In terms of thinking through my discipline, anthropology, which also has anthropos front and center, um, you know, anthropology has been understood as the science of the human or the science of anthropos. And as this terminology for Anthropocene emerged in the academic world and in some media outlets increasingly, um, many people said this Anthropocene condition, maybe it's a geologic age, but it's actually a great boon for anthropology because anthropologists study anthropos in in all, all these human forms from the ancient to the contemporary and every culture and every society in the world. So it's, it's, it's this deep understanding of anthropos. But one of the things that anthropology has also always done is to understand the differentiation and the distinction between different forms of culture and society and ways of being, language, habits, practices, behaviors. So anthropology has always studied humanity, but it's always emphasized the ways in which human beings are distinct from each other while also sharing a lot of qualities. So anthropology has always written against this idea of a universal set of qualities that all human beings have forever, you know, everywhere in all time. And so this Anthropocene condition is actually a good way for anthropology to return to that and think through the distinctions that we've found. <clears throat> and so too with other than human, you know, inter- interacting species. So if, if anthropology has always studied anthropos and the, and the distinctions there, I think it's now completely incumbent upon anthropology and other disciplines as well to really understand the relationship between anthropos and these other species that we share uh, the biosphere with. So to me, it's a kind of natural transition from focusing on anthropos in these times of Anthropocene to focusing on the non-anthropos and our interrelationship with them. And Again, the discipline has a long history of looking at the way that, for example, in t- indigenous peoples have lived in their environments, how they've interacted with different uh, life systems and animals and plants and other creatures in their environs. So this understanding of humans as living in an environment very fundamentally and having a relationship with environments is something that's been part of the discipline for a very long time, but now maybe has a finer point in times of climatological precarity, in times of environmental crisis, in times when we are recognizing in a more fulsome way every day as these weather events occur, as more catastrophe, environmental catastrophe ensues that we need to have a better sense of recognition about our relationship with other than humans uh, or non-human species, as well as inanimate life in the form of geos um, and these other non-living entities that we also share our space with. Hmm, That's fascinating. We've covered the questions I have about your book. Is there anything you want to make sure is here on the interview that we haven't covered yet? Oh, I don't know. I guess I think what's really important is that, you know, as we look at these cases of the dramatic social environmental or socio-environmental transitions that we are currently engaged in at, you know, at either a quicker or slower rate, depending on how you, how you view it. 
I think it's it's also important to recognize that even though we want to be critical of the way that transitions, energy transitions are occurring, we also want to be sure that we do continue to take up sustainable forms of living, that this is not a question of whether we need to engage renewable forms of energy and or reduce our energy consumption altogether, or maybe both and, but that in being critical of projects, it's not that we want to suggest that they shouldn't take place. It's just that we want to be very careful not to reproduce the kind of extractive logics that have underwritten the last several centuries of settler colonialism, essentially, and the extractive policies that have gotten us to this point of environmental precarity in the first place. So we should be critical of our transitions going forward, if only because this is an incredibly creative and generative time, and it is an experiment in many ways, but we also have an incredible opportunity to do things differently. So instead of thinking about you know, mapping our old politics onto these new energy forms, what if we thought about these new energy forms as creating, affecting, and generating new kinds of politics? I think that that would be a really exciting way for us to go forward, that this is a real opportunity of change, uh, civilizational change, societal change, as well as energetic change. So we should grasp this opportunity and think of the creative ways that we can um, instituted going forward to make a better world. Yeah. I hope that doesn't sound too corny. That, that, sounded, that sounds <laughs> great to me. And uh, I suppose that's a good note to end on, a hopeful and uplifting one. Thank you so much for your time and, and for writing this incredible book, which I love so much. Well, thank you, Lance. That's nice to hear. Well, thank you for taking the time to engage with it and ask such smart questions. 